Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Ackleshare. Obviously no real news from Tottenham Hotspur this week, but I have just been reading Charlie's excellent interview with the great Pascal Chimbonda, who spoke very interestingly about his time at White Hart Lane playing under Martin Yon Juan Ramos. Um, Charlie, Pascal Trimbonda's obviously got a bit of a reputation as a maverick character. How did you find him? <laughs> He's very good company, yeah, really entertaining. Um, yeah, interesting guy, uh, generally very positive. The, the one time he his mood turned really uh, more melancholic was reflecting on that transfer request he put in at Wigan uh, straight after uh, they'd been beaten by Arsenal. Uh, Highbury did it in the changing room and I think he it, it really soured things for him there and he fe- yeah I think he felt he he never or his reputation maybe never fully recovered in some people's eyes because it was seen as such a kind of cardinal sin to do that in the way he did but yeah re- really really good guy interesting bloke to talk to I was quite interested by his suggestion that he he may have kind of like like you know lost his chance to join Manchester United by doing that because I'm fairly sure uh, you know, Manchester United in that era signed players who had kind of forced their way out of their club quite often. I think that happens <laughs> quite, a lot in, quite a lot in football anyway, but I think in particular Manchester United were quite good at you know ensuring those things happened. I think it was the optics of it that it was kind of um, the way he did it and the fact that like Dave Whelan, who I think knew Sir Alex or something, uh, like that Whelan and Paul Jewell came out so publicly uh, and it felt like you know he was doing it to proper football men and that wasn't really fair um I, I think didn't help his cause in that in that sense i mean when you actually break it down though it's not really that bad is it? all he's all he's actually done is handed in a transfer request it's not like he's kind of done anything sort of surreptitious or whatever it's been quite direct no. about it and the timing is obviously not ideal but it, you know i yeah. can kind of see how that happens yeah yeah i mean play, players handing in transfer requests you know is is hardly uh, unusual, yeah. I think it was the timing. It was, and it was the end of this great season, and they were a really tight group, and all of this sort of thing. It was kind of like, why are you doing this, like straight after the game? Um, but yeah, it, 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 those sort of things do happen. He was just maybe unfortunate. The thing I'd forgotten is that he didn't actually join Spurs until like the very end of the transfer window, right at the end of August. So he was obviously kind of hanging around at Wigan after that for the whole summer. Yeah, he it played another game awkward. for Wigan. He he. Uh, yeah. He went off to the World Cup and then came back for pre-season, but obviously joined late because he'd played at the World Cup, so he was allowed to join. By the time he did come back, he was told, like, well, you know, you're two weeks behind the rest of the group, go and train with the reserves kind of thing. He did that for a bit, but then did force his way into the team. He was on the, came on as a sub in, I think, Wigan's second game of the season and then finally joined Tottenham uh, on deadline day. So, yeah, it was one of those that dragged on all summer. And Charlie, it really shines through the interview how much he enjoyed playing for Martin Yoll. Yeah, he speaks really highly of Yoll. I think um, he was exactly the kind of manager that, that really worked for Chimbonda from from the sounds of it that he... I think Yoll probably, you know, he says he, he thought that Chimbonda was a very laid-back character off the pitch, but, you know, seemed to think that once the game started, he you know would take things very seriously. So I think they, they had good chemistry and he liked that Yoll... Gave players freedom um, and was very straight with the players. And he articulates the disappointment that the players had when Yol was sacked and the way he was sacked kind of, again, you know, that's news leaking in the middle of that game against Hatafe and Chimbonda describes this scene in the dressing room of players crying. Um, so, yeah, it was obviously an emotional time and, and Yol clearly did have uh, a real connection with a lot of the players. James, do you remember much about Chimbonda's performances under Yol? Yeah, I, I, I mean, he was. It's not often that every club in the Premier League is after a player, and Spurs get the player. But you know, Chimbonda's first season in England was really incredible, and that Wigan team defied all expectations by finishing sort of comfortably in mid-table, getting to the League Cup final. Um, and Chimbonda got into to the PFA Team of the Year, so you know, can justify just just justify be calling him the best right back in the league at that point. Um, and it's an area where Spurs needed to strengthen uh, after Paul Stalteri had kind of flattered to deceive maybe the previous season, perhaps to be a bit harsh. Uh, so yeah, it was a really good signing, and he, he's kind of the modern fullback, really very attack-minded. He was decent defensively, but you know you could tell he was good on the ball and liked to get forward. 
scored a couple of goals, got a few assists, and yeah, it was, it was a decent player. It was a bit of a surprise that he kind of got moved on so quickly, but you know, sure, Luca came in, I guess, and yeah, he couldn't keep his place in the team. And Charlie, I love the story about demanding to play in the League Cup final under Juan de Ramos when he had a, <laughs> a, a knee injury and then yeah. knocked down his hotel room door. Yeah, yeah. So he, Chimbono had been really fearing he wouldn't be able to play because he had this knee problem, but then woke up on the morning of the game kind of feeling all right. So knocked on Juan de Ramos' door and said, look, I can play. And Ramos was kind of like, well, prove it, you know, sprint along this corridor. So <laughs> Chimbonda did and was fine. And got the start. And then James reminded me um, before I spoke to uh, Pascal that uh, he, Chimbonda got taken off during the game and, and was so disappointed. This is after about an hour with Spurs losing 1 0 to Chelsea. And Chimbonda got taken off and was kind of ambling off the pitch, much to the fans and the players' frustration. So I asked him about this and he said, yeah, uh, everyone was pretty pissed off. And Jermaine Genus kind of shoved him to, to hurry him along. Um, but luckily it all turned out okay because uh, Spurs came back and won the game. Harry's sponsors The View from the Lane, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and travel blade cover. As a listener of our podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash lane right now. That's harrys.com forward slash lane. Something else I wanted to draw your attention to is a story that Charlie did with our resident analytics expert, Tom Warville, about Tangi and Dombele, trying to unpick exactly what makes him good and why. Trying to reach a sort of fairer assessment, I think, of Ndombele's season. Charlie, tell us a bit about this one. Yeah, it's always really interesting collaborating with Tom because he, you know, he's, he can see things in a way that's very different to everyone else. Um, you know, he has access to so much data and he has a very analytical mind. And so, yeah, we looked at a few things. I mean, one of the things that was interesting was how good uh, a line breaker in Dombele is. You know, his passing is really... We've spoken about this before, I think, that his passing is maybe an underrated part of his game. Um, and he can really pierce defences. I think he's he's third in that metric behind Rodri and David Silva. Uh, his His dribbling numbers are also really really impressive and it was interesting as well um tom picked out some stuff that in scouting circles it was dembele who he had always been matched up with profile wise so you know you it it kind of reinforced the idea that there is so much there to like there's such an upside and there and he really could be the dembele replacement that spurs have been craving ever since dembele started to pick up those injuries and couldn't really play so much so it does then you know it comes down to this issue of can he get himself in shape so uh we looked at how much he's played previously and it's interesting because at leon he did seem to have put behind those fitness issues that jack you looked at uh in a lot of detail in uh, your background or when uh, around the time spurs signed him so yeah, you know, hopefully he will be able to get back to that sort of level. Obviously, the Premier League is a big step up physically from Liga. Um, but yeah, there's just, as we know, there's so much to like. And, and we looked as well at some of his central midfield partners uh, at Lyon. And it's interesting because he's excelled with some players with very different skill sets, you know, alongside one who's more in the kind of David Silver mould and then another who's more of a kind of Victor Wanyama. Um, and obviously it was with Wanyama that Dembele had some of his best moments. So it's kind of looking at as well what would bring the best out of Ndombele. Um, so, yeah, hopefully by the time football restarts, he will be in better shape and we can see the best of him. And Tottenham might then have the Dembele replacement that they, they so desperately need. James, are you hopeful for... And Dombley making a bit more of an impression when football comes back? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, having read that piece, it really sort of underlined the fact that, it, like, that it is kind of that persistence with him is probably going to be worthwhile. You know, looking at the the data, looking at the numbers, like the way he plays is clearly so similar to Dembele. You can kind of see the logic there. It makes it really clear. Perhaps even more clearly than you actually see on the pitch when he's kind of huffing and puffing and looking slightly awkward. Um, clearly, that is like a massive factor in how a player is going to perform, and it isn't something you just that you can just overlook, but. You can kind of see that if he can, you know, and and he'll by no means be the first player to come to the Premier League and struggle in the first season with with the intensity of the game, and he won't be the last either. So, you know, I, I think I think like it's clear that it's going to be worth persisting with him, and yeah, hopefully having had this uh, time for a bit of extra one on one tuition with uh, with Jose Mourinho <laughs> in various parks across London, then yeah, perhaps perhaps we'll see a slightly more improved version. Yeah, I'd love it to work out from Don Blay at Spurs, but I'm probably not very optimistic. So I was speaking to someone the other day, this is a contact of mine who who knows Don Blay very well, and he was saying that he he fears that too much has happened really between Don Blay and Mourinho, and he would expect him to leave in the summer. Although, of course, who knows what state the transfer market will be in the summer? You know, it's it's, it's hard enough getting a very you know a highly paid player out of Tottenham at the best of times. Never mind in a time where nobody has any money. So I wonder whether, it, you know, there's been a lot written about Barcelona and PSG being interested. I wonder whether it might be the case that a loan with an option to buy is the best solution because I can't really see him sticking around next year if Mourinho makes it clear he doesn't want him. So I guess it's um, it's, it's kind of impossible at this stage to speculate about transfers for for the end of the season because we don't even know when the season will end, never mind or, or start. Uh, but it's certainly one to keep an eye on. The big thing we've got on The Athletic about Tottenham this week is a all history of Spurs' 3-2 win at Ajax in the Champions League semi-final second leg, which of course was one year ago last Friday. Uh, this is a piece that Charlie and I put together speaking to Tottenham players, Ajax players, Tottenham staff, other journalists, fans, uh, trying, to, trying to tell the whole story of what I think is one of the greatest games in Tottenham's recent history, one of the, re- the greatest games in the Champions League's recent history. Um, we've had a nice feedback to it online. Charlie, w- where do you want to start with this? We kind of start, I guess, the night before, and it was interesting, um, according to Hannah Sheridan, who uh, is the club's uh, senior nutritionist, she was saying that you know the night before, the mood, the mood was really positive and the team all gathered to watch the Liverpool game because um, that was the night they beat Barca 4-0 and they achieved a miracle of sorts. And that really lifted everyone's mood. I mean, I think everyone's mood was pretty good anyway, but it was like, wow, yeah, we could we could do this. This, uh, this is eminently achievable. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the sort of mood was set from that point on. And then, yeah, obviously things uh, <laughs> things just escalated, you know, because Spurs then did have to do something similar, uh, and and they were able to achieve it as well. James, what was your what was your sense as a Spurs fan of the mood before the game? Spurs fans being Spurs fans, clearly there was there was quite a lot of pessimism. The thing the thing I had in mind was um, the Ajax in the previous two rounds when they'd knocked out Real Madrid and Juventus had been at home first. So basically, they'd been able to keep it tight in the home game, then go away, play on the front foot a little bit more, score the away goals, and then kind of, you know, basically get through on that basis. Um, but this tie was obviously flipped, and they had to come to London first. They won one nil, but you know, winning one nil away from home, obviously a good result, but in like away goals terms, isn't really much of a boost. So. Yeah, it was always going to stand to reason that if it was an open attacking game in the second leg, it could be difficult for them, and it did prove to be the case. It's interesting as well, James, you touched on that, uh, the home away dynamic, because something Michelle Vaughan said was that they were aware that Ajax were actually a lot better away from home in a way than at home. Um, they found it much easier to manage games that way. So that that was something um, the Spurs players were aware of as well. Um, and, and also because in those two um, previous rounds, so against Real Madrid, Ajax had lost at home and then had to overturn it, almost a shot at nothing in the second leg. They had nothing to lose. And then in the quarters, they drew the first leg at home against Juve, one all. So again, they went in as massive underdogs uh, in the second leg and, and they beat 
Juve away. It's a whole different dynamic when you win the first leg and then you're at home in the second and all the expectations are with you. And there was this sense among the Spurs players that uh, mentally, would they be strong enough? Would they know how to manage the game? Um, And Talia Fico talked about that as well, that they, they... their instincts are always to go forward and attack, which is kind of easier when you're chasing something than when you're protecting it. But I think even in the first game, what, you know, they started really well, Ajax, in the first sort of 20 minutes. So they were completely dominant. They had so much of the ball. And they were absolutely tearing Spurs to shreds without really creating many good chances. But then once things had kind of settled down, they looked sort of really unsure how to kind of take it from there, whether to keep trying to, you know, trying to kind of pour forward and, and get more goals, whether to try and just keep the ball. And in the end, it was that the second half of that first leg was kind of quite flat. It was almost Spurs couldn't really get going, and Ajax weren't really sure whether or not they should get going, and it just kind of petered out into into nothing. And you know, in the end, I think that kind of worked in Spurs' favour, really. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I did both. I did both Ajax against Juve games, and of course, both Ajax against Tottenham games. And the best that I saw Ajax play was well, basically the I'd say the the the, the second half of the game in Turin where they were fantastic, and probably the first half of that game as well. Whereas the game where, the one-all game with Juve in Amsterdam was a bit tighter. So they were fantastic when they destroyed Juve away, but as Charlie said, that was a bit of a free swing because you would normally have expected Ajax to go through. And then, of course, in the first in the first half of the game at White Hart Lane, they were incredible as well. But having having got themselves into that position, they then never really looked that confident again. And they didn't, you're right, the second half of that first leg at Tottenham was very tense and Spurs were getting more and more into it. And I think one thing that really stood out that Danny Rose said to me for part of this was that Spurs knew that Ajax blew up physically after 60 minutes that first leg. And they always sensed that in in the second leg, if they could get them to half time, then in the second half Ajax probably would blow up again. So I think... I mean, look, it's easy to say this with the hindsight of you know, a year down the line and this amazing Spurs c- comeback, but I think there were probably more weaknesses uh, like physically and probably mentally as well with this Ajax team than we realised at the time, because at the time the narrative was very much like this Ajax team is like the greatest football team we've ever seen, even though in reality there were probably more weaknesses there. And it did kind of get me thinking, even though they did score those two goals in the first half and went 2-0 up, I'm not sure, looking back, that they were quite as good in that game as we thought they were. Certainly not compared to other Ajax performances. Well, there are two two things on that. Like, firstly, from that first leg, um, kind of echoing what Danny Rose said, Ross Johnston, who we spoke to for this, he um, is the lead opposition analyst, and he he kind of echoed that. Not necessarily about them blowing up, but just that Spurs were way more in the game than I think the kind of public perception had been after the first leg and. Uh, you know, one of the things he said was everyone was singing Ajax's praises, but we knew the game was completely open. And then, likewise, in the second leg at half time, he said he was relatively calm at half time um, and talking to Pochettino and the coaches because they did feel that they Spurs hadn't really played that badly in the first half. Yes, they were two nil, but it really they had done a lot of the things they'd wanted to do, and it just needed a few small tweaks, and they still felt reasonably confident. Um, and I and I do remember watching the game. It was weird, and, and I think the away goals rule is such a massive part of this that three goals meant they won rather than just drew. It made it feel somehow uh, a lot closer, but there was a sense that even at 3-0 down, it, it didn't feel over to me. I, I don't know how you guys remember it, but that was, and, and maybe that's, again, partly with hindsight, but I, I am pretty sure that's how I felt at the time, that it, it didn't feel over. I definitely... I mean, you're right. That that away goal dynamic just it just completely changes the match, and you know, I mean, it is a bit of a cliche, but it did feel like one of those situations where the next goal was going to be absolutely crucial. And mm. Obviously, if Ajax had gone three 0 up, that would have been it. Um, but you could tell, you know, given what we were saying before, that this Ajax team were, you know, on, on a European stage, pretty raw, pretty you know, pretty green. They didn't have a lot of experience, and you know, if they conceded a goal and Spurs kind of got their tails up but suddenly they might they might panic and I mean to to be fair you know Spurs scored two goals quite quickly in the second half I think it was like sort of 55 and 57 maybe the first two goals and then the the Ajax kind of wrestled a bit more control again uh, and mm. the game sort of reverts back to maybe a bit more of a sort of 
a, a slightly more assertive performance from Ajax, maybe for sort of 25 minutes or so. I just can't understand watching that again. The the Spurs goal to make it um, two one on the night. So they're the Lucas is first. Which in the fifty fifth minute, it starts with Danny Rose nutmegging Matthias De Ligt deep in his own half. Matthias De Ligt being an Ajax centre back. Like, what is he doing in that position? Basically, he's playing as like uh, he's in like the right winger position. The Ajax are three nil up in the tie. It, it's just it's it's really bizarre, and like it does kind of speak to that inexperience and and maybe genuinely just getting a bit carried away and overconfident and not just shutting the game down yeah I definitely think it's it's a sign of a team that only knows how to play one way that they had no idea like mentally how to approach that second half like I remember thinking it's weird because looking back you can see that Spurs were having some good openings towards the end of the first half like that one where I think it's Son gets in behind down the left and hits the post from that low cross so clearly they were dangerous but at the time like the mood you know one piece that one thing that the piece really conveys is the mood in the ground at half time was that it was over I think that might be to do with the crowd or certainly up in the press box we were you know we were talking to each other and saying well look it's it's going to be Ajax Liverpool final let's all get ready for that let's start think and you get into that journalistic mindset where all you're really wrapped up in is not so much the game itself but what you're writing and we were right you know, I was I was preparing because Delict had scored the first goal for Ajax and had been fantastic against Juventus. I I I was starting to prepare this like Delict is the future of football piece, and I spent most of half time writing it. Uh, and then, of course, when when Ajax conceded those two <laughs> goals at the start of the second half, I'm thinking, Christ, like I'm not really sure this is going to work now. And then basically spent the whole of the second half trying to take into account the the Spurs comeback while still writing uh, Delict is the future of football piece which of course was a complete mess it was terrible I'm very pleased it never saw the light of day but because you know it's kind of one of the problems with writing live is that you get so wrapped up in what you're doing that in fact like the events of the second half of the match only matter in, in as much as as they might help or hinder the piece that you're working on um mm. Another thing that interested me about the piece, Charlie, from the people you spoke to, is about the changes at halftime that Pochettino made, specifically the bringing on of Llorente and the freeing Mm. up of Lucas, and how everyone we spoke to said that at this moment, Pochettino was very, very calm and methodical and inspirational, rather than being panicky or or anything. Yeah, it sounds like he got the the message just right. I mean, that halftime dynamic is really interesting, and again, from... From all the people we spoke to, you've got this element of Kane coming down and sounds like, you know, issuing some home truths in a really impressive, assured way. And then you've got the analysts and the coaches, you know, being very, having a few minutes to really methodically work out, okay, well, what are the things we actually need to change? And then Pochettino being able to be calm and lucid enough to communicate that to everyone. And so... Uh, you did have this change. So Llorente was coming on, Wanyama was going off, and this meant Ericsson was dropping deeper and they hoped that they'd be able to kind of work through the phases a bit more and be the Ajax press that way. Lucas Moro was going to play a role kind of more in between things, a bit harder to track. Um, and obviously, you know, so it proved. He then goes and scores a hat-trick. Uh, so it's pretty amazing how it all worked out. But yeah, I think also underpinned by this sense that, look, guys, yeah, we need three goals, but we we just have to get the first one. If we get the first one, we know that physically they're not as strong as us, uh, and also mentally, how are they going to like it? And and also, I mean, Michelle Vaughan talked about that as well. In a kind of, you know, we know they're a team who, if we stand off them, they'll pass it around us. But if we can really get at them, let's see how they like it. And so it's this combination of those slight intangibles but then with the more concrete little tactical tweaks um made by the management and and then being able to communicate that clearly to everyone and it all combined and obviously worked (laughs) fantastically well in the second half that said as well i mean we're still talking small margins i mean ziek hits the post doesn't he larissa makes some good saves and if those go in you know it's it's a completely different story but um also tadic should have run the ball to the corner flag towards the end of the game and he he tried to cross the ball so david ginola against Bulgaria in 1993 mm. or whatever it was, a similar sort of vein. Um, the thing that actually really interested me about that half-time section of the piece was, was Harry Kane's involvement in the kind of uh, 
in the halftime team talk and whatever, it seems like he played like, I, I mean, quite a prominent, or maybe not a prominent role, but he was quite heavily involved in the sort of motivational side of things and was seemingly offering some sort of tactical insight given he'd been set up in the in the gods in the stands in the first half. Yeah, absolutely. I think he did. Um, you know, because I think he, ha- having that little distance probably helped as well. You know, just being able to get across that message of, A, yeah, th- sort of tactical things he'd spotted from a better vantage point, but also just that thing of like, you know, we we cannot let this opportunity pass us by. Um which sometimes can be easier to see when you're not involved in it. You know, you've got a slightly different vantage point. And I think what he said was pretty inspirational. And Lucas Moura as well, apparently, was really positive with everyone. Uh, you know, hitting people on the back and just and just really geeing them up for that second half. And obviously his attitude that completely we're still in it shone through because he then went and scored three goals. And I think Kane... Kane also must have known that the only the only way he could play another game of football that season would have been if Spurs had got through to the Champions League final, which of course they did, and that was his comeback from the ankle injury he sustained in the first leg against Manchester City. Um, so, and through that whole time, there was that um, that big debate that ran through quite a lot of last season, which was: Are Spurs better with or without Kane? Are they too dependent on Kane? Does Kane's absence lift everyone else? And so I'm sure from Kane's perspective, he would have been, you know, I mean, look, they were all desperate, but he would have been especially desperate for them to get through so that he could play again in the final, which, of course, he did. Um, one other thing I want to pick up on is just like how it is just amazing watching it back, how like the kind of unlikeliness of all these goals that they all rely on, like mm. fairly un- fairly surprising bounces. The one where Anana saves and then Scherner tries to clear, gets in Onana's way, fails to clear, gets knocked over by Onana, and then the ball rolls out to Lucas. Like, it really is kind of... It really is pinball, one-in-a-million stuff, isn't it? Well, you, you say that like it was like a sort of tapping, but, I mean, he, like, controls the ball finish, on the yeah. turn, but, it, like, he's back to goal, and turns on a sixpence. Like, it, such a tight little area, and then like, slots it in. It's an incredible finish. It's unbelievable how he does that, how the quick feet required to do that, to even yeah. get the space. But to do all of that is just, like, unbelievable skill. But also, I mean, yeah, the third goal, Darren Fletcher talked about it being, like, perfectly imperfect. And he, he said, you know, all the kind of passes that lead up are slightly, uh, they're not quite right. They require a bit of a stretch. Like, it's amazing, just these tiny things, uh, all, all of which that, just land perfectly and Deli Alley though I mean that assist is just incredible for yeah. the third goal yeah. as uh, Fletcher says and I think it's true like that's kind of gets forgotten because obviously just uh, you know you're not going to analyse the goal a goal like that you just, it's just euphoric right so whatever but like it is the composure to do what he does bring it down and, and lay it off perfectly for Mora is in that moment is something special yeah it's funny isn't it you'll, you'll often talk about like the composure of, of a center forward for on goal in the last minute of a game in a decisive moment but you don't often say the same of the, of the player who's played that precision pass and obviously mm. the same the same pressure applies to that player as well yeah it's like Balotelli for Aguero in 2012 yeah exactly like having having that ice cold mentality to to not just swing and take a kind of very low percentage shot which of course he could have done in the circumstances um, and play the pass but also Delhi just on that kind of the composure because when we spoke to we asked you know what's your memory of that assist and he says not much everything I do is completely instinctive in football I can remember praying he would finish it so it's interesting that even in that moment um, it's still just an instinctive thing you're, you're luckily <laughs> you know you're not thinking about it too much and you just rely on your talent and skill uh, to do the rest and it did Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash the lane and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the View from the Lane podcast, you will get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in too. 
Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash the lane to get your case free. And don't forget right now, listeners get two extra free beers. The thing about Lucas getting this hat trick is that whatever you might think about Lucas as a player, like obviously this is an inc- you know, this this is one of the greatest achievements in in recent football, I think. And I kind of think it could only really have been Lucas of the Spurs players. Like Lucas's Lucas's ability, which is, you know, he's quite a streaky player, he's quite inconsistent, but he on a good day you know that he is incredibly quick footed, brilliant finisher has this kind of like just natural like penalty box instinct and ability to pull off difficult finishes and skip past opponents even though you know that you might only get that kind of level of performance one game out of five one game out of ten from him I really don't think even if Kane had been playing and Kane is an amazing player much better than Lucas in almost every way I don't really think Spurs have got anybody else who could have delivered those goals quite in the same way is that fair? I know what you mean. He 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 is so hot and cold that when he's hot, he's really really hot. And when he gets confident, you know, once that first one goes in, you're just so sure uh, he's going to take the other two. I mean, yeah, his his ceiling is extremely high. Um, we don't get to see it that often because, as you say, you know, he, he he's not the most consistent. Um, but yeah, I I, I think so. Um, someone because someone like I was thinking could Son Heung Min maybe, but. I think Son is more, he'll get a lot of chances because he's so intelligent and everything like that, but I wouldn't necessarily back him to just stick three away in this kind of in this kind of way. I'd expect maybe, you know, he'd miss one, but he would just keep coming back for more, whereas Mora might have a game where he misses all five, but then has a game like this. It's kind of all or nothing with him. Yeah, I mean, they, they are three very different finishes as well, aren't they? I mean, the first one is like a proper one-on-one, really. He has like takes a couple of touches and has time to think about it which for some players doesn't necessarily do them any favours the second one we've said is this amazing close control turn and finish and the third one is like like a first time finish which he has to strike immediately otherwise the defender's going to get across him and get the block in so that, that, like, that's quite a broad skill set for a, for a forward player to display in one game. It's not like they're all sort of scrappy tappings. But uh, yeah, you're right with what you say. I mean, he's a ludicrously erratic player. And, and yeah, it's hard to see that many players could, could score a hat-trick like that and then not play in the final and it, and it be the mm. right decision. But I, I maintain that it was the right decision to not play him in the final. Yeah, I, yeah, I, and- I kind of agree with that. Me too. And James, tell me about your, you know, as a Spurs fan, your your emotions at this point, if you can remember them, when that third goal went in. Uh, yeah, it was just it was just disbelief. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'd, this is going to sound really bad, but I have to admit, at half time, my main thought process was, well, at least I'm not going to have to shell out a load of money to to get to Madrid and, and kind of <laughs> work at home when you get there, because obviously Liverpool getting to the final the night before meant that all the Liverpool fans had kind of snapped up the flights and wherever yeah. else to get over to Madrid and got first tips on the hotels and stuff. So it was it was going to be a really expensive... It was... Uh, actually, it wasn't in the end for me. It was going to be... It looked like it was going to be a very expensive trip. Um, and yeah, I, had to, yeah I, I kind of had that in mind that I was going to be saving quite a lot of money, as disappointing as it was. But uh, yeah, clearly it, it kind of all seemed to turn around so quickly, even though there was this like half-hour spell between those uh, the first two goals and, and the last one. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of a it's a very emotional time, and you've invested a lot of of kind of emotion and money into supporting a football team, um, and then they kind of come up trumps like that in a massive game when you're so used to seeing that team mess up in the in the most comical and embarrassing of circumstances. Uh, I think I did a thread on this on Twitter all the stupid things that Spurs had done in the sort of 25, 30 years of me sporting them before that. Oh, yeah. That kind of built up to that moment. Yeah, it is. It, it was. It's one of those things that you just don't. When you support a team like Spurs, who, you know, to, to younger fans or people that are newer to football will probably see as a big club, but I think to people that are my sort of age, who kind of suffered the 1990s, will kind of not see as one of the very top clubs. Uh, it wasn't a thing that I ever expected to happen to Spurs. I really just didn't ever expect to see Spurs play in the European Cup final. It's just not, not something I ever kind of, ever even like dared, dared to dream about because it just seems so so far away. And it, yeah, it's yeah, it's still you know obviously having having read this piece this week and you know a lot of people have been talking about it on social media. It, even now, 
it kind of just feels like a kind of completely otherworldly experience. It just it just feels like an absolutely, I don't know, especially given what's happening in the world at the moment, it just feels like an absolute yeah. lifetime ago. It's so strange. Yeah, I would completely, I would completely echo that. It does feel completely alien from from current life. Not least because you know this is the time of year that's meant to be Champions League season, where you get these amazing games. And of course, now we don't have that. I'd also agree with what James said about how the time between Lucas's second and third goals did actually t- seem to flash by. Like all I really remember of that is those Ajax chances on the break, and thinking that they were going to do it. Although I did have this kind of sense after they were. The better Spurs looked in that game, the more we started to think, well, hold on a second. Ajax are good, but Liverpool are going to make mincemeat out of them in the final. And then when the goal went in at the end, the third one, the two things I remember is, one, I've never seen a group of players as devastated in defeat as the Ajax players were then. And this is something that Paul Miles, who's uh, sort of Spurs Spurs official journalist, said in his interview with Charlie, is that Ajax players collapsing everywhere. Like They were all absolutely devastated on the floor, couldn't get up as Spurs were celebrating. And the second thing I remember was my this is a big night for Matthias De Ligt piece was totally ruined <laughs> and thinking, God, there is no way I can turn this into anything at all. Like, it's just can total you just, bollocks. Just, like, re- replace the words Matthias De Ligt with Lucas Moura and just say... <laughs> yeah. I was thinking yes. that, yeah, Lucas Moura, the future of football. So I actually, I remember sending a message to uh, to the desk at The Independent where I was working at the time saying, look, I'm really sorry, but you are not because you know the presumption was that we would file basically on or close to the whistle so I'm, I'm very sorry but you are not going to get a piece out of me for a while uh and then deleting it all and then writing something on how devastated Ajax were and how this was the work because you know I was with my colleague Jonathan Liu who was writing a more kind of general match piece uh and so I was doing something to accompany that just saying how devastated Ajax were and I'd never seen you know a, te- a team that should have achieved you know that should be in the final by now had screwed it up in the most astonishing way possible and then of course we had the celebrations Charlie which you had some great details about in the interviews on the pitch yes yeah, it was room. great to hear about that on the pitch and also in the dressing room of people you know just drinks flying around Daniel Levy being picked up apparently and um, people singing Wonderwall a lot of singing the Musa Sissoko song apparently the O Musa Sissoko that became the kind of song of choice um, just delirium and I think as well what a lot of people uh, who we spoke to said was that they they loved the fact that they went they went then back out to be with the fans Pochettino got everyone and it meant they could really soak it in that bit more um, because I think the final whistle and the initial celebrations kind of went by in a bit of a blur but then they could go back out and just take in the magnitude of what they'd done and and it was really nice like loads of people I spoke to commented on the fact they had friends or family in the crowd and that it just felt so big uh you know so much bigger than just winning a football match and a Ross Johnson saying about you know there is obviously a professional line between the staff and the players but at that moment it did just feel like they were all this big group of mates and you know to be celebrating that in that way was just incredible and 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 I think what makes it such a compelling story in a way is the contrast with that and then as you say that utter devastation uh the Ajax players felt that Nicola Taliafico told us in heart-wrenching detail you know and and I think partly it was because in sport there's that cliche of like always next year or whatever but it was so clear that this was Ajax's moment we knew their team was going to get decimated in the summer they'd exceeded all expectations uh and you know and that's such like a sad reflection on football in a way that you know if you do upset the apple cart in this way your team is just going to get picked off but that is the reality and so it meant that for Ajax it did feel like their one shot had gone and in the cruelest way and then obviously for Spurs Again, the context, and a few people mentioned this, and, and James, you touched on it before, that you know the whole Spursy narrative and Tottenham being so close but so far that they had they had shown so much nerve and they had delivered in the most pressured moment when everything was probably telling Tottenham fans, no, we're not going to do it. It's going to be another night of glorious failure. Um, and so all of that context just made for the most emotional celebrations and the feeling for Pochettino and everyone there that they'd been on this journey together for the last five years and that they'd got that this was the culmination of that just just so compelling and such a, a potent combination the whole thing we, we yeah, should caveat that just just by saying that they did then concede a penalty within the first 30 seconds of the final it's important let's not dwell on that wow. yeah 
But I I've only been dwelling on it for twelve months. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, I mean, like, it, I obviously this was the the climax of the whole Pochettino era. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't really at the time because everybody was just thinking about the final, and then even after the final, people were thinking about next season and you know the first full season at the new stadium, and nobody knew about coronavirus or or any of that. And, and of course, looking back in April, it would have been. Or sorry, in May, it would have been unimaginable that Pochettino would get sacked six months later. But, you know, with the hindsight and the benefit of history, we can say this was the climax, this was the peak. And that, I think, and I think Pochettino knew that. Like, he knew that the summer would be really hard and next season would be even harder. And I think that that explains his amazing reaction, you know, running around the pitch in floods of tears, shirt open. Uh, I spoke to Des Kelly, who was, I think, was one of the first kind of non-Spurs people to speak to Pochettino afterwards and said that Pochettino was in floods of tears and every time if he mentioned his family he would start crying again because I think clearly this was you know both the culmination but also ultimately the end of the process that started in 2014 that kind of five-year run and unfortunately everything that happened after this as in the final the summer and the first few months of this season were basically a kind of unwanted epilogue to the story which really ended this evening do you think that's fair or am i just imposing a sort of narrative on this no i I mean i think if you kind of strip the champions league run away then that sort of decline had already had already begun last season hadn't it really i mean from sort of january onwards the league form had been had been pretty terrible really but save one or two good performances um it kind of really only scraped into the top four uh, I think it was a, a point they got in that Everton game, the last game of the season, when I think, did Arsenal drop points as well? I can't even remember now. Arsenal um, won, um, but I, th- I think Spurs were more or less there. They just needed yeah, a point. Yeah, they just needed a point. I, in I there, think, in fact, they, could have, they, they only could have not got it if they'd lost like 9-0 or something. You can never rule it out. Um, <laughs> I, I, actually, I mean, that, that, that kind of three and a half weeks between the, the semi-final and the final was probably like the most enjoyable period of being a Spurs fan, I think. And they only played that one game against Everton where they were pretty rubbish and drew 2-2. Um, but apparently but the atmosphere felt- Nathan was saying, James, and you, I don't know if you were at that Everton game, apparently it was amazing, the atmosphere that day. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really good. a celebratory feel. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, it was kind of a bit of a, a, bit of a free hit, as we said. It was unlikely they were going to miss out on the top four. But, it, you know, it kind of... And, and obviously, there were Everton fans there who were singing about Spurs winning the final because it was against Liverpool. Uh, and Lucas Moore obviously got a, an amazing reception uh, and it was just a bit, a bit of a party atmosphere, really. That few, those few weeks, like the whole atmosphere around the club, I remember being incredible. And Spurs were really, really good in terms of their their media access. And a few, a small group of us spoke to Pochettino. I think in the maybe a few a week or so, maybe a few days before they all flew out. And he was in he was in total like spiritual mode at this point. He was talking about. You know, uh, snapping arrows with the necks of the players and walking across hot coals and and it was all about energy and uh, just get it's all about energy and mindset and and all that sort of thing. Whereas looking back, like Liverpool took a very different approach to preparation for the final. Like Liverpool went on a break, I think, to Marbella, where they had uh, a big relax and everything. Whereas Spurs, basically, Spurs players trained very very hard in the build-up to the final. And looking back, and it's very easy to be smart with hindsight, some Spurs players felt that Liverpool's kind of Marbella approach would have, was better than than, than Spurs' hard, hard training approach. I wonder, like, it's, it's easy to be smart after the event with this kind of thing, like approaches to training. I think Liverpool were ultimately just better than Spurs in the final. James, how, I, I, you... think, I think I'm right in saying that didn't Liverpool sort of make a similar mistake the year before. And that's why they went on a break like between the end of the season and the final, wasn't it? When they played Madrid, they had kind of basically just trained the whole way through. And that's, and that's what they changed oh, okay. it. okay. I didn't know the, that. That's I think that's right. I think that's right. I but mean, Liverpool have just had the benefit of the experience of having played in the final and all of the stuff that goes with that. I mean, it's quite a, it must be quite a sort of overwhelming experience. And not, not just on the day, but in those kind of weeks building up to it. Especially when you have no game for three weeks and that's all you're thinking about. Like for a fan, it's great. It's really exciting. But for a player, yeah. presumably, it must be quite daunting. I was going to say that it does feel from the outside as if that speaks to a certain level of experience and confidence to not go kind of hell for leather in the few weeks before, because that would be that totally makes sense of the temptation. Um, if you haven't been there before, it's just like right, let's we've just got to work as hard as we possibly can 
Whereas maybe with a bit of experience, you can take a step back and have the benefit of being like, well, what worked for us last season? What could we tweak? And it sounds like that's what Liverpool were able to do. And I did kind of feel like, and again, this is very easy for you to impose after the event, but it did, it did kind of feel at the time as if Liverpool had gone to the final desperate to win it because they had to win it because they lost the previous year. Whereas for Spurs, it was a little bit more like, oh, wow, isn't this great? We're in the Champions League final. And maybe that's being unfair on the Spurs players and staff and fans, but that's kind of how I remember it feeling. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can see that being the case. I mean, I, th- that's just the benefit experience, though, isn't it? The benefit of having yeah. been wounded by what happened against Madrid the year before. You're not gonna, you're going to be determined not to make that mistake again. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's not, you know, you can't, you can't teach experience, can you? That's the thing. You can't train experience. It's just the thing you gain through, through having lived through it. It's not, it's not really a lot. It's not like a criticism of Spurs. It's just. It's just unfortunate they didn't have that experience in the squad or, or on the coaching staff or whatever. But that could go the other way and we could be sitting here saying in retrospect, well, Liverpool just had the burden of expectation having lost the final of the year before, whereas Spurs were liberated and could go and express themselves. Do you know what I mean? So, like, Completely, yeah. It could work either way, I think. How do you think Spurs played in that game? In the final? Yeah. I mean, they were, it was kind of a sort of 6 out of 10, wasn't it, really? They weren't... I don't think they were dreadful. Obviously, they made a, a bad start and heads probably went a little bit in, in the first kind of five, ten minutes. But actually, I think if you look at the stats in terms of sort of possession and, and chances created or, or whatever, shots on target, that they were they were the better team, quote unquote. But yeah, I, I don't really remember ever feeling... I, I don't think there was the chance. I don't remember there being like... There isn't like a sort of standout moment from the game where you look at and say oh we've only I mean I think there was quite a good save from Alisson from maybe Ericsson one that he tipped over the bar um, yeah. I mean you probably remember better than me Jack because you were probably in a slightly better condition um, <laughs> it was and funnily so enough hot. I've not watched it back it was incredibly yeah. hot it was so I've never I don't think I've ever been that hot at a game at like 9pm local time or whenever it would have kicked off yeah like it was boiling and it was he- it was like heavy and humid and it was, you know, I wonder if that, I wonder if a combination of that plus the training effects on, of the players on, you know, being camped away for the last few weeks training meant that it just wasn't really a high intensity game. I think yeah, we were hoping exactly. for like a Barclays style back and forth <laughs> Premier League game. But instead, like a lot of the players on both teams, but especially on Spurs team looked exhausted and it did kind of kill the kill the flow of the game a bit. Yeah, it did have that feel, and it's really interesting you say that about what the weather was like there, because it did have the feel of one of those World Cup games where yes, yes. the conditions are just brutal, and you can see the teams kind of struggling through it, and because it, 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 it was flat, it never got going. I remember after about an hour of it, just saying to guys I was with, like, this, this is, this is really disappointing, isn't it? Like, this just hasn't started in the way we hoped. Yeah, and I think more, you know. I remember some of the other reporters there who'd obviously been to a lot of Champions League finals were saying that it was maybe the worst Champions League final since 2003. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That nil-nil, yeah. You've in, in terms of quality. And so I remember there was like a counter view that came out. I can't remember who wrote this, but some people did say a day or two after the game that actually Spurs weren't that bad and they had quite a few like one-on-one, two-on-two opportunities and it was basically just Van Dyke and Allison being perfect that meant that none of those Spurs attacks in the second half could really get through. And in fact, they'd been they'd been Liverpool had managed the game and defended much better. And it wasn't just that Spurs were rubbish and bottled it, which I think is pr- there's probably an element of truth in that. I mean, Allison got mad of the match, right? Without wanting to sort of paraphrase there, Ron Atkinson. So Spurs can't have been that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do you feel like James? Do you do you look back on the? This might be a stupid question. Do you look back on the final as like a massive missed opportunity, or do you look on it as like an amazing day for the whole club? Oh yeah, I think I think it can be both, can't it? I think I mean, yeah. uh, it, it's a missed opportunity in that it, you know, it probably seems unlikely Spurs will be in the European Cup final again anytime soon. But you know, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience the whole run, and obviously the day you know in Madrid. I think every, I don't think there's anyone who went there. Who will have regretted it? I mean, I know. I mean, I know a couple of people that went to Amsterdam, and then subsequently couldn't afford to go to Madrid. Um, uh, yes, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you're about to ask me a difficult question, aren't you? Uh, well, yeah. So the, for the benefit, of our <laughs> not, not that we not that we ever kind of discuss these things mm. beforehand. Obviously, it's all yeah. off the cuff. So for the benefit of listeners who weren't party to this earlier on, 
Uh, James, I think you you were in Madrid, but not Amsterdam. Yeah. Would you swap? Would you swap that if you could? <sighs> no, I don't think I would. I don't think really? I would. It's to, I, it's, it's, I mean, obviously, like have, to be in Amsterdam, like not not being there is like one of my massive regrets. And I did try to get a ticket, and couldn't get one, which was incredibly annoying because I thought my status at my previous employer would have been enough to secure one. Um, and I don't want to go press box. I'm not. I'm not really into that. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a big regret to not be out of that game. But I, you know, I think I'd rather say I've seen my team play in the European Cup final. I think even if they lost, I, I kind of think like you would regret going to the semi final and not going to the final, even though Spurs had lost. I mean, you'd you'd have to ask those people, I guess. And I, I get the impression they do. Yeah, I can. I, I totally get that. And and Madrid was yeah, really it's a, it's a proper well. Sophie's choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was an, and also you know, uh, it was a it was a great day and a, and a very lovely evening. And a very long drive home um, with two you Liverpool drove. fans, by the way. Yeah, have we not talked about this before? <laughs> uh, maybe not on the podcast. So, so it's like a sort of classic four-four-two hijink. So me and a colleague, another Spurs fan, and two Liverpool fans. One journalist, Tony Evans, uh, formerly of the Times. Uh, I think he's at ESPN now, maybe? Or certainly writes for ESPN. Is it the Independent? In the, oh, yeah, he's at the Indy. There you go. Yeah, so basically we had two Liverpool fans who could drive and two Spurs fans who couldn't. So that dynamic would have been quite awkward on the way back had Spurs won, I guess. And we had a big uh, motorhome and drove from London to Madrid over the course of sort of five or three days down, two days back up, uh, which was more pleasant on the way down than the way back. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I bet. And one other thing we should say about this is that I think we can say safely now that if if Spurs had won, I'm sure Pochino would have walked because it would have been the perfect goodbye. And it, and in doing so, he would have saved quite a lot of the, the nonsense of this season uh, in various ways. But of course, he didn't get his wish. And we yeah, we know that he he uh, he went off in a sulk to Barcelona after the final, didn't travel home with the squad. And that itself was a sort of aggravating factor, I think, in his relationship with the club. But it would, that would have been the perfect send-off, wouldn't it? The ultimate yeah, mic yeah. drop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone would begrudge him that either. Excellent. Well, I think that's if you look. If you want to read our oral history of Ajax two Tottenham three, you'll there's, you'll find an awful lot in it that we haven't touched on this afternoon because there, there is tons in the piece. Uh, and if you're not a subscriber already to the Athletic, you can read the piece by going to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod and signing up for a ninety day free trial. Mm-hmm. 